Tonight we move into the uh, body of the book of Job as we begin to contemplate the dialogue that takes place between Job and uh, the friends. Uh, Tonight we look at uh, Job's opening statements and then next week we begin to look at the reactions that the friends had to what Job had to say and then a dialogue ensues. Uh, We begin by looking at uh, Job's disparity of life. Job finds no reason to go on with life. There are three main thoughts in Job's opening statements. First, Job wishes that he was never born, verses 3 to 11. Job wonders why he was allowed to live, Job 3, 12 to 19. And then Job wrestles with why God does not simply take his life. Those are three questions that he struggles with. Key verse is Job 3.1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. If you remember in the prologue to the book, there is a battle that is going on uh, between Christ and Satan, if you will, between God and Satan. And uh, God says, if you considered my servant Job, there is no one as righteous as he. Satan says, well, do you think he fears you for not? Take away what he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so, God allows Satan to take all of Job's possessions, and even Job's children. Well, he doesn't curse God. And uh, round two, Satan comes to present himself before God. Have you considered my servant Job? And... Satan says, well, you put a hedge around him. You haven't let me touch his body. Uh, If you let me touch his body, he will curse you to your face. And uh, God allows Satan to really torment Job physically, uh, putting the restriction that Satan is not allowed to take Job's life. And we looked at the anguish of Job's suffering. And uh, it got pretty graphic. A number of people mentioned uh, they wish I would have stopped because it was getting pretty, pretty gruesome. Uh, but uh, it was a hideous time in Job's life. And so we find Job coming to the place in which he wished that he had never been born. He wonders why God allowed him to be born alive. And then why does God simply not take him? Why is he going through All these things. So in his despair, Job asks the big wide questions. Job 3.11, why did I die at birth? Come forth from the tomb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? And why the breast that I should suck? Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the day of light? Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? And whom God has hedged in. Job's friends are going to be foolish enough to try and answer Job's questions. That is their big mistake as comforter. Uh, We pointed out the many good qualities that were found in the friends of Job. And their desire to bring him comfort and solace. So, you you really want to praise them for their desire, for their motivation, 
And also the incredible steadfastness and devotion that they demonstrated to Job to sit in his presence when we described his really hideous condition, that they sat with him for seven days and, and were willing to experience the stench and the filth and the, the odorous, onerous situation that he was in. So there's much to praise the friends for. But yet we find that God is angered at the friends. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. What Job said was right. What the friends said were wrong. And God was angered by the counsel that they gave, by the explanations that they offered, by the way in which they represented the workings of God. God was angered by what they said, and Job had to eventually intervene for his friends before God. So we we need to keep that balance. Good guys, obviously godly people, wanting what was best for Job, wanting to be counselors, wanting to bring him comfort, but misrepresenting God, misrepresenting the truth, and as a result, angering God. We need to be careful what we say to people in the midst of their pain and their suffering. I remember we went through an experience with my father-in-law. My uh, father-in-law came down with uh, cancer. He had lymphoma. And uh, he suffered with lymphoma for an extended period of time. Uh, Really became extremely weakened through it. uh, Lost a lot of weight. Lost the hair. The, The things that we all know happens to cancer patients. And uh, I remember that three days before my father-in-law died, he was in a hospital. He was on oxygen. He was skin and bones. He could hardly keep his eyes awake, open. And uh, it just so happened that uh, he attended our Bible Fellowship Church. His wife, my mother-in-law, attended a Pentecostal church. And her pastor came in to see my father-in-law three days before he died, almost in a coma, and said to him, if you have enough faith, you'll get up out of this bed and walk home and be fine. Turn around and left. That was his word of encouragement. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that he meant well. And probably believed what he said. But, unfortunately, it wasn't very helpful. Uh, It's not good to raise doubts in the minds of people that are about to die. Uh, It was not God's will for him to be healed. It was not God's punishment. It was not his lack of faith. But that's what was being represented. We need to be very careful in how we answer people in their times of suffering. So, we do not need to feel obligated to answer the big wide questions in people's lives. We need to realize that there are mysteries. There are things that we don't know. There are many wide questions in life that we simply cannot and therefore should not answer. 
Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. There are things that God reveals. There are things that, that He does not reveal. And we need to understand the difference. The things that are revealed, they're for us to know, and they're for us to act upon. The things that are not revealed, we are not to know, we're not to act upon. The friends do not know what we know. The friends do not have the information that we have in reading the book of Job about the battle that's going on between Satan and God. They don't know what is going on behind the scenes. Job doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. All that Job knows is the pain and suffering that he's experiencing. And all the friends know is that which they see. They don't know the why question. There are, of course, different levels at which we can speak to some degree to the why questions. There is a theological level that is both necessary and helpful to understand. When my father-in-law was dying of cancer, in the providence of God, I was working through a series on Sunday nights on uh, life after death. Many of you can remember that series. And my father-in-law really wasn't very steeped in the scriptures, came to faith later in life. And there were a lot of things that, that he simply didn't know and didn't understand. Uh, but as he came down with an illness, as many times happens, he became much more concerned about his spiritual life and well-being and wanted to understand and know things much, in much greater detail. So every Monday, after I did my evening series on uh, life after death, I'd walk in with my hand out and uh, I'd sit with my father-in-law and go over my handout with him about what happens after we die. I think he found that to be very comforting. He looked forward to those times, had a myriad of questions. That can be very helpful. There, there's a certain level of theological understanding that we need to know about pain and suffering. So, we can answer Job's questions at an introductory level, because what is revealed to us in the first two chapters of Job? So, we know about this struggle that's going on between Christ and and, uh, excuse me, God and Satan. We understand that this is a test. We understand what God's purpose is. And we can then extrapolate from that that there are things that we need to know and understand at a uh, theological level. However, the first two chapters of Job provide a basis for many questions that we cannot answer. All right? So, as you work through those first two, two chapters, there's a lot of questions about good and evil and, and other things that, that if you contemplate, you'll realize that that leads us down a road that those answers aren't particularly easy either. We, we, we need to, to realize that, that there is a, a practical level so here I have, there are many pain and suffering questions that theologically we're un, we are unable to fully answer on a personal level in spite of the best attempts by devoted brilliant men and women to do so. In other words, what I'm trying to say is there, there, there is a general truth out there that we understand theologically. Okay. For example, 
moving to the death of my father. My, my father came down with Alzheimer's. And that was a long and slow death as well. And my dad, I grew up in a, in a fine Christian home. He was very well uh, versed in the scriptures. Uh, he was our delegate to annual conference for years. He was our prayer meeting leader for years, taught Sunday school for years, read his Bible faithfully. He knew the word of God. Uh, it was tough to see him go backwards. It was tough to see him get to the place where he didn't know me, didn't know who I was, didn't know my wife, didn't know my, my children, uh, wet himself, all kinds of things. And so you wrestle and, and you say to yourself, as Job's question was, why, why didn't God just take him? Why, why does God leave him here? Now, I know enough in the Bible that I know some of those answers. God wanted to teach me something about, about uh, care and, and dutifulness for caring for my, my father. I know that it was an opportunity to be a witness and an example. I know it brought my wife and myself closer. I've said often how much I appreciate my wife and the way in which she cared for my father. Gave me a greater respect for him. It was an opportunity to teach our children about how we need to care for others. There are Many, many ways in which we can answer that question and say, well, this is why. And at the same time, there's an inability, an inexplicability to explain on another level. But why? Why would God allow a man that had been very uh, devoted to him get to the place where he's using foul language? I never heard my dad use foul language in his life until he didn't know what was happening. I didn't even know where it came from. And I'm saying, why, why would God allow that? Why, why would he allow my young children to experience that when they didn't have the background to his life that I had? So on the one hand, you can say, oh, these are the reasons. And on the other hand, there are a lot of mysteries here that we don't have any reasons for. And that's what I'm trying to, to say to you tonight. Secondly, we must understand that the sufferer often knows the answers to the questions that they are raising to the same degree that we do, if not better. Here's one of the great mysteries in the scripture. Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus on the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the cry of Jesus. It's fascinating what the commentators do with that verse. Some head down a road that tries to expose Jesus as a charlatan. That he really wasn't the Son of God. He really wasn't omnipotent and omniscient and know all things. And he is baffled by what is taking place. Well, we know that's not true. Jesus is not baffled by what is taking place. He 
tells the disciples that he must die. He must rise again. Jesus knew the answer to the question, why have you now forsaken me? He knew that he was bearing the consequences for our sin. He knew that he was bearing the wrath of God upon us, uh, for us. He knew what it was that was transpiring in his life. Okay? It wasn't that he was void of theological truth and understanding. It is a statement of pain and agony and frustrations. It was rhetorical in nature. He really wasn't expecting the apostles to explain to Jesus why God had forsaken him. He wasn't looking for some explanation. It was a cry looking for comfort, for solace. And you see, there is always a mystery. So, yes, we know why he was forsaken. As I said, it was punishment of which he bore consequences for our sin. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. We sing about it all the time. But then there's this mystery. How can God forsake God? And once we start down that road, we just kind of scratch our heads and have to acknowledge there's a mystery to that statement that we can't unfold. So we can handle it at a certain level, but start peeling away the layers of the onion and you get to the core and we're as baffled by the statement as, as anyone. My point to you tonight is that Oftentimes, like that in Jesus' life, such questions should be viewed as rhetorical in nature. When Job is asking these why questions, I don't think he's expecting his friends to answer them. He's not looking for information. They're prompted by a desire for solace. It's a manifestation of Job's frustration. It's a lament, if you will. And it's helpful for us to be able to make those distinctions in seeking to comfort others. There are times, like with my father-in-law, that it is good to try to give theological understanding of what is taking place but there is another sense in which, but why at age 57 did my father-in-law die? I don't know. I don't know. Why did God decide to give him a long, difficult disease? I don't know. I don't know. When you talk about a specific example in a specific person's life, we can talk in generalities. But when you get to the specifics, we don't know. And that's what we need to keep in mind as we look at these questions in the life of Job. So, number one. Job wishes that he would never been born. Let the day perish on which I was to be born. The night which said a boy is conceived. I don't know if I said it, so I, I, let me say it now. 
in Job chapter 3, verse 1, it said that Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He didn't curse God, but he cursed the day of his birth. He wished that he was never born. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it. Let not light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Fancy way of saying, may I have no birthday. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of his twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. Neither let it see the breaking dawn. May that day never have existed, is what he is saying. Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Job said, I wish that day had never happened. I wish that I had never been born. God finds no fault with Job in that frustration. God does not rebuke Job at this point for what he is saying. We need to understand that when people suffer greatly, they may wish that they had never been born. That can be tough to hear. But it sometimes happened. Number two, Job wonders why he was allowed to live. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should suck? Job reasons that if only Job had died at birth, he would not have had to go through all of this pain and suffering now. For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. Job asserts that even the great and all their accomplishments come to nothing. With kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver, or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. Job is saying there is no difference. Whether you be a king or a pauper, whether you be an old or whether you be infant, Job's earthly accomplishments, as Job looks back at what he lost, part of Job's perspective on what he lost is it didn't matter. He said, naked have I come from the womb, naked I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job realized he couldn't take the money with him. Job realized he couldn't take the cattle with him. Job realized he couldn't take the houses with him. Job realized that all of that was meaningless for eternity. It didn't matter. So Job asked the question, what is the significance of my existence? Why does it matter that I am here and that I became the wealthiest man on the face of the earth? What does that have to do with anything? Job begins to ask. Death is seen as a welcome rest for the weary. There the wicked cease from raging. 
And there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. Death is seen as an escape. He's looking forward to being pain-free. Many, many people, when they are suffering greatly, long for death. Pray for death. Desire death. And I've been around people, you know, and well-meaning say, you know, Dad, you shouldn't talk like that. Or, or Mom, you shouldn't feel that way. Uh, why not? Why not long to be in the presence of God? Why not look forward to with a, with a sense of expectation of being free from all that we are experiencing? So D, the rich and powerful and the poor and needy have the same end. The small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. Job looks at life and says, what difference is there when it really comes down to the end? When it happens. I, I remember after uh, my mother died, my uh, dad had to come to live with us because uh, he was in the initial stages of Alzheimer's. When he first came to live with us, he lived with us a little over five years. Uh, in the beginning, he was relatively functioning, but he still couldn't live on, on his own. He would leave the burner on and all kinds of things. So he just couldn't live by himself. And we were going to sell the property to a man. And the man that we sold the property to was, was very wealthy. My dad had a beautiful home on top of a hill that overlooked what used to be the farm that he owned. He had 30 acres. A terrific view. And the man came to buy the property and he was looking out over it and he said to me, and the man was probably in his 70s, he said to me, you know, I, I've known your, your father a long time. And he said, I tried to buy this house from your dad on a number of occasions. He wasn't interested in selling. He said, I'm sorry that we're buying it under these circumstances. And then he said, I had always hoped that my wife and I would retire to this house. His wife was dying. She was in a hospital. This man was quite wealthy. And he said, there is nothing I can do for her. I've taken her to all the best clinics. We've seen the best doctors. He wept and he said, she's never going to live in this house. She's going to die. Death comes to the wealthy and to the poor. And we can begin to ask the question, why? Then what is the significance? Then why are we here? That's what Job is wrestling with. Thirdly, Job wrestles with why God does not simply take his life. Job wrestles with the question, why must those who suffer continue to live? It's a little different. It's a little different. It's a progression in thought. Why doesn't God just take him. We know some of the theological answers to that. Job doesn't. 
So Job wrestled with the question, why must those who suffer continue to live? Job 3.20, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? The sufferer wants to die, but he or she has to continue on in misery. Who long for death, but there is none. Who longs for death, but there is none. Again, why doesn't God just take the life of the sufferer? Number two, the sufferer is glad when he or she sees the day of his or her death approaching. Who rejoice greatly, they exult when they find the grave. Job wrestles with the question, why does a man have to continue to live when his life seems to be useless for God? Job 3.23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? I didn't unpack the rest of the book of Job. We'll get to these, these sections. But, but Job wrestles with the idea that when he was younger, people came to him for advice. They came to him for counsel. He was a help to others. He was able to provide labor for individuals. He hired many servants. He could look and see how his life was productive. He could see how it had value. He could see how he was a benefit to the, to the widow. He had something to offer them. He had advice and counsel to offer the young men. He had wisdom. But now he was forsaken. Nobody was coming to him on the ash heap asking Job great questions in life. He had no property. He had no wealth. He had nothing with which to help anyone. He was dependent. He had nothing to offer. So, why does God keep someone here who has nothing to offer? Again, pardon the, all the personal illustrations, but I think they're helpful for us to realize we all have these experiences in our life. And this is the one that I struggled with with my father the most. Why did God keep him when his mind was gone? When he couldn't do anything for himself. When he couldn't be of value to the family. Of value to the church. Couldn't teach any longer. Couldn't do any of these things. One of the worst days. My dad, most of the time, was out of it. I don't know how Alzheimer's works. But every once in a while... He'd have a good day. Every once in a while, he would know what was happening. and be devastated when he realized his condition, realized his, his physical situation. One day, we were leaving, my wife and I, and we put Sarah in charge of my dad. And he would wander out of the house and wander down the road. And so when we were gone, he had to stay in the house. So we said to Sarah, who was then about... I guess, 16, we said to Sarah, you've got to keep Grandpa in the house. She said, okay. Well, we left. He wanted to leave. Sarah said, Grandpa, you can't go. And he wanted to go. And she said, Grandpa, you've you got to stay. And said, no, I want to go. No, you got to stay. And he hit her. He just laid off and hit her right in the stomach, and she just crumpled to the floor. In his right mind, he never did anything like that. 
but he became violent at times. He, she crumpled to the floor in front of the doorway. And then he realized what he had done. He sat down on the floor and just wept. And that was the condition I found him in when I returned. Sitting on the floor, weeping for having hit Sarah. And you say, why? Why? Now again, Sarah learned much through that. It was a growing experience. Teaches patience. We understand those things. But at an emotional level, there is a why that there just isn't good explanation for. Number one, Job no longer wants to eat. The very thought of food makes him sick, for my groaning comes at the sight of my food. What Job feared most in life is the very thing that Job is experiencing. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. For the child of God, I believe that God gives great grace And there is not a fear of death. But a lot of times there is a fear of dying. And what I mean by that, it's not death. It's what it takes to get there. It's the process. It's the debilitation. It's the humiliation. It's the mental pain and suffering. The physical pain and suffering. It's the dependency. It's the loss of personal dignity. It's all those things that all of us don't want to experience. And Job is there. Because Satan had thrown his very best at Job. And then three, Job finds no peace in all that he's going through. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. And I'm not at rest, but turmoil comes. Wow. We're going to actually end on that note. I know it's pretty devastating. I know it's pretty dissatisfying. The book of Job is not over. Okay? But I think it's helpful. Because it gives us the introduction to be careful with the answers that we so glibly give. Number one, most people know them. Most people know them. Romans 8.28 is a great verse of comfort. But said at the wrong time in the wrong way can come like a sword. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That is a great verse. That's a verse to memorize. That's a verse to live by. And yes, it is a great comfort. But sometimes when people are struggling with those why questions, it's not the time to 
give them Romans 8.28, chances are they could quote it to you. Chances are they could exegete it every bit as well as you or I can. It's not that they don't know Romans 8.28. They're going through a lot of pain and anguish and suffering. Sometimes, the best we can do is weep with them. Stand by them. Where the disciples failed is they forsook Jesus. They should have stayed with him. Where the counselors, Job's friends failed is they opened their mouths. They should have just listened to what Job was saying and understand. Conclusion. Experiences come to pass in which people want to die. People can easily wonder, why am I still here? Job fails to see how he's being used of God. But of course he is. He is. So now we're back to the theological track. Now we speak to people who are not in the midst of pain and suffering, whose minds are not debilitated, whose reasoning powers are still strong, who need a foundation to build upon. You see, that's the tension. We need to understand our Bibles and our theology at such a level that when we hit these potholes in the road, that we have a basis for which to understand what is taking place, that we can talk ourselves through these things. Job's life was not useless. Job's life was not meaningless. God still had a lot in store for Job. He didn't know what it was. Maybe we don't know all that God has. I can't tell you, again, why my father was allowed to live like that. I can tell you about some of the benefits that were accrued for my family, for others. There is a purpose. But sometimes it's hard to find it and to explain it. D. One must realize that a sovereign God has good reason in that which we cannot explain. And we don't have to. We simply don't have to. That's a part of our submissiveness to the mind and will of God. I don't know. But I know the God that I serve. And that's where Job rises to such great height. We see him in the lowest ebb here. And he's going to rise up. And he's going to say great things such as, I know my Redeemer lives. And I shall stand before him. He's going to talk himself through this. He's going to take what he knows and apply it. But it is a process. It is a process. He's going to apply what he knows about God. Still not knowing chapters 1 and 2. Still not knowing the debate. Still not knowing that. But there are certain things he knows about the person and character of God that's going to see him through this thing. And that's what we're going to look at.
the person and character of God as we wrestle with the book of Job. So, tonight, let's be compassionate. Let's be understanding with people who are suffering. With people who ask the great why questions. May we not be moved by that. May we not be unnerved by that. May we certainly not rebuke them for that. May we understand and seek to grant solace and comfort and to pray for God to be merciful. Give grace. Give patience. Give help. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a loving God. And our heart goes out to many. We speak not in a vacuum. We know Marge Malin just died and, and Joe and family are going through a lot of pain and suffering. We pray for this funeral that's about to take place. We hear about Diane's father, who's had seven stints already, who's lived with Lou Gehrig's disease for a long period of time. We look and see Camelli and her mother and all that they have been through. We understand Pastor Reichenbach being 97 and receiving oxygen. We think of Dot, who is under hospice care, who's had three transfusions in the last month. Oh Lord, help us to be compassionate. Help us to be understanding. Help us to be encouraging. Help us to stand by such people. Help us to be wise in exercising restraint. For they have lived, they have known much. They understand your word. They understand what's taking place. But they may have great, great questions. And so may we. Uh, But Lord, sustain us and help us to understand your character, your purpose. And may we glorify you in that steadfast allegiance and rejoice that Job never cursed you, never defied you, never rebelled against you. Guard our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.